This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, this is uh, Jeff Robinson from uh, UBS's Fundamental Analytics team. Um, I'm joined by my uh, two usual uh, counterparts, uh, Rob Rampton from our Tobacco and Bev's team. Hello. And Liv Townsend from our uh, retail team. Hello. But today we have a special guest. We've got uh, Andrew Stott, who runs our chemicals team here in Europe. And the idea today was to kind of discuss which valuation methodology is the one we should be working with. Should we be going all in for DCF? Or is, in fact, DCF so kind of spurious with so many sensitive assumptions, really multiples is the way forward. And um, the way we want to run today is um, Rob's kind of going to be in character of just being devil's advocate as we go through this, uh, uh, this next kind of 15 or 20 minutes. So he's going to pick holes in arguments, kind of stand off and, and just kind of create a, a, a little bit of debate. Um, Liv's also going to bring her experience into, into her role. And also, really, the reason that uh, Andrew is here is to kind of give us the kind of day-to-day perspective from a chems analyst's perspective. So, Andrew, over to you. Are we DCF or are you multiples in your team? We're everything, Jeff. So, um, I remember being told 20 years ago by a sales guy I used to work with that the PE was dead and long live DCFs and free cash flow. And he was completely wrong. I mean, I think if we look at all our coverage and all our client base, you have to tailor the approach because we have either staples proxies or we have deep cyclicals and so you cannot enter a conversation just with one approach um, in our world um, and i'm sure uh, rob and liv are going to uh, disagree with this but for us a dcf is a framework and only a framework mm. um, where we tend to find uh, most traction really in conversations on valuations is sensitivities so that's where the thesis map comes in, but obviously that's the output. The input is how does your pricing look? How does your volume look? And, where, and how bad could the cycle be? So very, very different approach. And then the other thing I'd add is, you know, we go through really uh, high and low cycles on M&A. And so, of course, when M&A enters the arena, we have completely different conversations. That's really around um, capital employed, premiums paid, um, and of course, you know, the value destruction or creation thereof. So you're saying kind of a, a DCF is kind of a framework to allow you to ask better questions and then see what the, the output is, see what the sensitivities are behind those questions? Yeah, and I think that's right. But I think the problem with the DCF in materials world, and, and that's only part of our sector, I think this is probably more extreme in oil and gas and sure. mining, for example, is that you can really um, rely too heavily on a mid-cycle framework. You know, right. at the terminal value, the mid-cycle margin is X. Well, guess what? Nobody really knows. Yeah. So that only ends up being a scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's what a DCF is to yeah. us. Yeah. Rob, I guess in consumer staples world, a DCF is never a scenario, right? Yeah, the 2020 growth rates are projected forever. And we plug those into our DCFs and uh, there we are. Um, I was just going to ask something about what you were saying earlier uh, in terms of what the conversations with investors are. Um, you said it was the volume price outlook. That seems, the DCF seems irrelevant to that conversation, right? If you think volume's getting better, the DC, you don't need a DCF. Why, why forecast more than next year? 
That's a good question. I mean, often in, I would say for about 25, 30% of our coverage, we really should really only look at that 12 month view because building anything explicit beyond year one just becomes um, so much hope or, or you know, or, or uh, pessimism, depending on how you see the cycle and you can't prove or disprove. So I think that's a great question. And frankly, especially when you're looking at the hedge fund community, you are really only talking about the next few quarters and the evolution of numbers. I have a quick question as well. Are all of your companies generating positive free cash flow? No, but often for different reasons, we find negative free cash flow outcomes. So we do have some pretty uh, interesting growth companies that are throwing capex to sales ratios up to double digit, you know, 10 to 15%. And that leaves a really interesting outcome as a debate, which is what is the return on that capex? Um, and sometimes therefore, and you know, that will depend on where we are in that particular debate, but sometimes the client doesn't care about a negative free cash flow yield. They just don't care. The debate is really, what is your long-term growth assumption? But then equally, we'll have some scenarios where you know, you've got a deep cyclical with trough earnings with a horrible pension liability, where free cash flow, negative free cash flow yield is just horrific and to be avoided at all costs. And that's almost when you're getting into activism territory. Do you think at that point when a company goes into actually producing negative free cash flow that you then should change how you're valuing the company, that a DCF becomes potentially not meaningless, but there's, it would mean more to look at it on a multiples basis? Yeah, I think it's even broader than that. I think the approach wouldn't necessarily change, but I think the sensitivity to scenarios becomes huge. So the two examples I gave you, one is a growth company, one is a value case. You know that negative free cash flow yield can't last for long without the board coming under pressure on either capital allocation or strategy or both. So at that point, you've really got to question if you have a neutral rating. You've got to really question whether you should because you're in that debate that's getting daily pretty more um, controversial. And the outcome usually on that is the stock will go down a lot or up a lot at that point. When you think about circumstances when it's gone up or down, just in the context of the valuation conversation, I imagine because it's got negative free cash flow, obviously you can still do a DCF, um, just go on forever. But what tends to be the driver of whether it goes up or down from a valuation perspective? Is it that it looks cheap on EV sales, so it's a distressed and someone can buy it and just milk the margin? Or how does it work? Yeah, it can be that. I mean, there's so many scenarios, it's hard to answer that question uh, briefly. Um, <laughs> I could be here all day, of course. Um, but I think l so much will depend on the reaction of the board. You know, if you think about a balance sheet under stress, usually, not always, but usually that is it coming in tandem with negative free cash yield. It's then about the next event. How does the board react from a point of view of the deal they've just done or capex they've laid down? Uh, how do they protect themselves? Often that comes with vulnerability as a company, unless you know, you're lucky enough to have a pref share structure or some foundation behind you, and some of our companies do. But I, I think that's often um, the next event that will then dictate the share price. You know, and, and sort of second guessing from your own experience of that management team, mm -hmm. second guessing the flexibility of their thinking is, is really important at that point. So I was just going to say, so you've got a third year coverage where 
only 12 months matters, the, just where you are versus expectations. Then you've got the distressed scenarios where it's about thinking about what the board's going to do. That leaves, I don't know how much of your sector is distressed at a given moment, um, but then half your coverage where you don't, valuation is not relevant or it's a waste of time. No, valuation is always relevant. I think what becomes different, and you're going to be more familiar with this with tobacco, for example, is that in the other half of our sector, which is either utility-like or staples-like, so gases or you know the consumer stuff we do, the debate then is how realistic is your long-term growth and why? And that might be a seismic shift in the industry on pricing, or it might be some specific argument you can see on long-term volumes, some structural changes, but that's really that that point, um, a test of your ability as an analyst to differentiate more than anything. The valuation is still really relevant, but what becomes a lot more relevant is the growth framework you've put in and being able to say how you're different, if, if indeed you're different. You can't be different on every stock, right? So Andrew, just to pick up on one thing that resonated with me there, you, you start talking about kind of long-term low growth rates there. Um, how do you think the market, and this question to all of you really, um, how do you think the market is reacting to the fact that we are looking like we're in a low rate environment from a sustainable position going into the future for X number of years? Um, how's the market reacting to that kind of environment at the moment? Well, it's it not really different to how it's reacted since the crisis. I think we've really just entered the 10th year of central bank policy and quantitative easing. We've just been through many cycles of that same secular pattern. I think the fascinating thing for me is that the behavior of the buy side has not changed in that 10-year period. Its propensity to re-rate anything with visibility continues to grow. So a good example quantitatively of that is our consumer chemicals names are now on a 40% premium to their 10-year average on a PE basis. They're actually even on a 20% premium to consumer staples names. So that is pretty remarkable but to be fair to those companies they have delivered as well so that helps and then at the other end of the scale we've got you know some of our cyclical names pretty close to 10-year lows on any measure absolute share price multiple and very close if not at dividend yield highs so you know what what's really matter what matters today is what's mattered for most of the last 10 years which is kind of get my arms around the P&L cash flow and balance sheets of those companies with any degree of confidence. In Staples, as far as I can see, so the the lower yields have just driven um, P's up to historic highs relative to relative to the market. In terms of why, so the argument you could construct is that when did, when yields are low, that increases the relative attraction of bond proxies you know these are very stable companies with very stable earnings there's not a lot of uncertainties the story that narrative has changed completely though over the last 24 months in tobacco which has lost its there has become a great deal more uncertainty about the terminal value the long-term growth of these companies and as a consequence they have ceased to operate like a staples company trade with yields they now behave i think a lot more like well from the sounds of a chemical company it's about can you get your arms around what's what's going on from a regulatory perspective would be the would be the parallel to the the pnl because the pnl is fine it's just can you get ahead but of i that? guess you know in your world it's not as clear as that because i take abi as an example in beverages and there's a tipping point right so if you put too much debt on your balance sheet 
what becomes usually an opportunity, uh, which is that long-term arbitrage between government bonds and dividend yields, becomes actually something very different, which is what is the pace at which you delever? So I, I guess, do, do you think in your world, Rob, there's a, a level at which leverage becomes a problem? Do you think there's a, a magic number? Is it three times net debt to EBITDA or is, it, is, it, is that too straightforward? That, that's a great point. And I think it comes back to what you were saying about investors searching for visibility. If something is a bond proxy because it's stable, um, when you get to a point where that's no longer the case because it's too levered, um, then that relationship breaks down. So that would just be one example of something that would cause that relationship to break down if they were having margin issues or you know if they were having if they were seriously challenged. I imagine you'd see the same, and I, I'd have to go back and check, but you probably do. Um, but is there a magic leverage level that the relationships, the um, the cost of debt outweighs the, the the bond proxy element? My sense for that would be around four times. Four times. Okay, interesting. Well, in retail, um, I would say, especially for online retail, visibility is very low, um, given the fact that the companies are mostly uh, free cash flow negative at the moment um, and looking like they will be for the next couple of years. So in that environment, and I think it, this is true also of the sort of online food delivery companies as well, when you end up with a low interest rate environment, um, the initial reaction is for those stocks to go down. Um, I, there are lots of sort of company specific factors that I think kind of muddy the water a bit. Um, but the initial reaction is that it's it's not good. So in simple terms, those those stocks you mentioned, or those type of stocks you mentioned, are just seen as risky assets. And, it, and if governments are repricing equity markets the wrong way, you struggle so it's almost the opposite of what, what Staples World would see. Yeah, it is. And it's the world where you would use a 10 plus percent whack. Right. right. Um, it's just, they are, when, when so much of the share price is pivoting on what your, your long-term um, margin profile is, as soon as there's any hint of, of a you know, low interest rate, then um, they're just not very attractive anymore. So just to draw this whole conversation um, to a close effect, we've got three very different perspectives here because of the sectors that we operate in. Just to go around the table, and what would you say would be, I'll start off with Andrew, um, your, your takeaway about valuation, having looked at the last three months or 12 months of behaviour on the market? So I'd say my sector, the, the fashion, maybe it's not fashion, maybe it's here to stay, but the real focus now is free cash for yield and equity. Um, I would say clients are, you know, not quite 100% focused on that, but not far off it. In the same way, the PE is not completely dead, as I said right at the beginning. Uh, the free cash yield and equity calculation as a discussion is really alive and well. Um, and, and in fact, people getting into the weeds to the extent that, you know, you, they're then coming back going, well, what's your normalised capex and what's your normalised working capital well, around that? Yeah. And I was going to come on to that. And that is ultimately just, just a short version of a DCF. So, so even in materials world, there is a real fixation about what is my free cash yield and equity, which again comes back to that debate we were having on uh, central bank policy. You know, if, if ultimately you can prove there's a really nice arbitrage to be made, a, a really healthy spread, then equity markets are, are going to leap on that. Rob? I guess over the last 12 months, 
I've observed that the under normal circumstances for a company which is going concern, uh, the valuation, the multiple gaps, so the PE and EV EBITDA gaps between them and similar peers does seem to drive at least relative investor attention and relative share price. The second thing is, from a DCF perspective, the relationship between staples companies and yields, while partly driven by the dividend yield element, is also probably driven by the DCF underpin that a lot of investors use, and certainly we use as well. And the third point is when companies aren't going concern and there's a lot of uncertainty, then as, as Andrew was saying, it becomes more about the inflection point and the news flow, and valuation is less relevant. So in retail, I would say, that over the last 12 months, what we've seen is that, in, especially in online retail, these stocks have tended to trade away from the fundamentals and more on sentiment, news flow, um, about the total addressable market, um, rather than actually looking at valuation uh, in terms of multiples relative to history um, or indeed on a DCF basis. Okay. Well, I guess my, my takeaway from this, just to kind of finish off, because I'm not a sector analyst, I, I, I run the fundamentals team here uh, at UBS, is um, fundamentals is all about cash risk and growth. And sometimes that's not reflected on the market and you've got that disconnect between price and value. And just picking on what you said, Liv, um, it's interesting when the fundamentals don't connect with the price because what then you have is, I guess, cash risk and growth um, kind of evolves into cash risk and hope, especially with these, um, uh, these young companies that have bright ideas but are still trying to work out how to monetize those ideas in the long term. But um, I'm going I'm to say thank you for, for your time today. So we've had Rob Rampton from Tobacco and Bevs. We've had Liv from the, uh, the retail team. And uh, our guest star was uh, Andrew Stott from uh, Chemicals, who is running European Chemicals uh, here at UBS. So thanks for your time, and we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon. Cheers. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries, and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content. It has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regulatory, or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by such persons. This content is the valuable intellectual property of UBS, and UBS specifically prohibits the redistribution of it in whole or in part without its prior written permission. Copyright UBS 2021. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS, all rights reserved.